Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media. And also, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sada Flodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about sexual health, wellness, and the clitoris. Before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that we are not giving any type of medical advice. So if you're having a health concern, please speak with your friendly neighborhood medical provider. And if you have any questions about your religion, please ask your friendly neighborhood religious leader. It's a Muslim sex podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So today we are so lucky to have on with us the famous Dr. Rachel Rubin. And Dr. Rubin, thank you for joining us. If you could please uh, introduce yourself to the listeners and the viewers, uh, that would be great. Yes, I'm so happy to be here and so glad we are finally able co to connect. I know our schedules uh, have been misaligned at times. Um, I'm Dr. Rachel Rubin. I'm a urologist and sexual medicine specialist based out of the Washington, D.C. area. I own my own practice, which I started a little over a year ago, that really is dedicated to taking care of all people with any sexual health concerns. So I always say I do four things. I deal with issues of libido, arousal, orgasm, and pain. Uh, and really, I focus on quality of life. So that means I do a lot of menopause management. I deal with pelvic pain. I deal with people who can't orgasm. I deal with erectile dysfunction and low testosterone. And we talk about issues that are not easy to talk about in a 10-minute doctor visit. And so we do it differently. We spend a lot of time with people. We get to know you because I have to get to know you to understand what your goals are and how to improve your quality of life. And so it's just the most fun thing ever. Uh, and that's I guess that's my background. That is awesome. So, so I know that you are out in Washington, DC and your practice is over there. Um, so what are the most common complaints then that people usually come to you for? Yeah, you know, not everyone makes an appointment to see a sex doctor. And so uh, usually I always joke about three people have told you about me by the time you make an appointment because you don't know that somebody like me exists and you can't believe that somebody like me can actually help somebody like you. And so usually it's your OBGYN has told you about me and you say, oh, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. And then your sex therapist tells you about me and they say, oh, yeah, I don't want to do that. And then the pelvic floor physical therapist and then they come to see me. So I see 
I see all people for all sorts of problems, whether it's menopause complaints, um, pain with sex, I see a lot of. I see a lot of erectile dysfunction, low testosterone. Um, and I, you know, because of what I do, I get uh, what I call the, um, uh, not the weird and the wacky, but more the rare conditions that people don't see a lot that I see a lot. So I see medication-induced sexual dysfunction a lot. I see persistent genital arousal disorder a lot. I see conditions that people have never heard of a lot because there are only a handful of us in the country who really take the time to try to help these patients. Not that we're always 100% successful, but that we do attempt to help patients. That is awesome. Definitely. I mean, there are not very many people at all that are qualified to deal with all of those things. And especially persistent genital arousal disorder. I know that, you know, a lot of physicians haven't even heard of that and let alone have to, you know, deal, you know, examine the patient and know exactly what it is that you're looking for and then be able to treat them, I think is definitely a rarity. So I think that's awesome that you do that. Um, I know that recently you were featured in the New York Times and you're considered um, the clitoris doctor. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, the D, they, they called me DC's premier clitorologist, a title that nobody else wanted and I happily took. And so there was just an absolutely incredible viral article that came out in the New York Times in 2022 that uh, the headline was essentially half the world has a clitoris, why don't doctors study it? And it really uh, brought in the importance of why do doctors not org uh, examine the clitoris routinely? Why don't doctors ask people if they can orgasm or if they have any uh, uh, sexual health concerns? Because when we do surgery or give medications or do things to patients, it can affect sexual health. And if we don't ask you about it, we can't give you proper informed consent. What is this hysterectomy going to do to my orgasm? What is this labia surgery going to do to my pleasure? Uh, what is this um, endometriosis uh, uh, hormone blocker going to do for my sexual health? What is this antidepressant going to do for my orgasm? And so the article uh, really was, um, the cool thing about it was it went viral. Everyone read this article and 2 million people hit share. I mean, what world are we in? Because there's lots of articles about sex, but there was something special about this article that was really, really caught people's eye. And they shared it with a friend, which is what, you know, as you and I love doing is the whole point of this is to get people talking, yeah. is to get people realizing they don't have to suffer, that these things matter, quality of life matters, and sexual pleasure and sexual health are important. Yeah, absolutely. No. And also you mentioned and you talk a lot on your Instagram about um, clitoral adhesions and how that can mute the orgasm response. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this is super interesting. And actually, uh, part of why the New York Times sort of wrote about it was um, doctors don't routinely examine the clitoris. Now, that would be like someone saying, ooh, we shouldn't examine penises because we don't want to make our, our patients uncomfortable. I'm a urologist. Can you imagine being told not to examine a man's penis, right, uh, to, that it would make him feel uncomfortable? So there are penises that have foreskin. Now, um, you know, many Muslim Muslims are circumcised, if I remember my, um, my cultural norms. I, you know, I don't know. Does it matter where you're from and what the cultural norms are? Exactly. So actually, it's really not uh, part of our tradition. It's more cultural. So cultural. for example, like in Africa or in India, um, there will be women there that I know what you're talking You're talking about FGM, the female genital. No, 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 not I'm no. I'm talking about male circumcision. Oh, yeah, male, male no, no, circumcision. absolutely. Male circumcision. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. 
no, you're saying male. Cir- yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, I was not talking about female. Okay. That's a whole, co- I, yeah, no male circumcision is very common, right? Yeah. So what I was going to say is part of uh, Islam men are supposed yes, to be same. I'm an, I, as a Jewish person. Yes. So, so traditionally, right. We circumcise as well. And so, but the men who are not circumcised, right. They are taught to pull back their foreskins. They pull back. I'll, I'll use my sleeve, right. They pull back the foreskin, clean underneath it and put it back in place. And that if men who have foreskin don't do that, they develop what's called phimosis or adhesions where they get erections and the, the foreskin can be stuck to the head of the penis and it hurts. It's irritating. It's uncomfortable. It happens more in diabetics. And we treat that as doctors all the time, this problem. Well, women all have, um, uh, if they have not been cut, uh, women have a hood or a prepuce. We call it a clitoral foreskin, if you will. And technically, we probably should be pulling it back and cleaning the oils and skin cells out from under it and putting it back uh, in place. And science really has never looked at this issue before. And doctors are not routinely taught how to even examine clitorises. And it's not part of the general checkup that you get with an OBGYN. Um, And we found in 2017, during my fellowship, we looked at thousands of pictures of vulvas. And we found that about 23% of women have what's called clitoris adhesions where you try to pull the the hood back and it gets stuck to the head of the clitoris. And so that's all we knew from 2017. And then I had a brilliant group of medical students from Chicago look at my data and said, well, gee, if we stretch open the tissue and get rid of those adhesions, does it improve anyone's orgasm? Does it actually help? And we found remarkably that about we had about a 75% reduction in pain and a 60 plus percent improvement in orgasm, arousal, and satisfaction. And people were really happy. So it's one of those things for women who say, ooh, I don't like when my partner touches my clitoris. It's too sensitive. I don't like oral sex. I don't like being touched there. We usually tell patients to go see a coach like you to talk about it as opposed to see the doctor like you to actually examine it and see if there's something actually physically going on in that area. That's amazing. I mean, that is life changing for women, right? Because as we know, most women need clitoral stimulation to orgasm. And so if that response is muted, or if they have pain with it, then it's unlikely that they will enjoy sex. Absolutely. And so it's, it's like, to your point, right? Most women, as we know, orgasm from clitoral stimulation, not from penetration. So I joke, it's like if a guy comes to see me for uh, sexual problems and says, Dr. Rubin, I have tried for years to orgasm rubbing the inside of my thigh. And no matter how much I do it, I can't orgasm. I'm broken. There's something wrong with me. Can you fix me, Dr. Rubin? I want to be able to rub my thigh to have an orgasm. I can't fix him, right? And I say, well, just go a little bit more towards the penis and and you'll get that orgasm. So that's essentially what women are doing. They're coming and saying, I'm broken. I can't orgasm from penetration. Nothing that happens is working, whether it's five minutes or 20 minutes. Well, you're in the wrong spot for most people. Now, some people are very sensitive and have extra nerves and are very lucky and can orgasm from penetration, but that's the rare, that's the exception, not the, not the rule. Yeah. No, that, that is phenomenal. And I know that for a lot of women, women have actually reached out and told me that they have never experienced orgasm and that they just didn't know how, and their, their partners didn't know either. And I think that has a lot to do with not understanding the anatomy and not realizing what it's there for. And as we both know, the clitoris is the only organ that is solely for pleasure 
right? Whereas like the penis, it serves multiple functions. The clitoris only serves that function. And so I think that it's just so important. And most OBGYNs are not comfortable discussing this topic. And I think also it has a lot to do with our medical school education, our residencies. I mean, I can tell you that in when I was going to medical school, um, we had probably about like a few hours of sexual health you know, education at all, if at all. And that was based on the 1966 research by Masters and Johnson based on old white men. And we know that women are not men. And so we never really learned anything about the female sexual response. And then flash forward to like my residency and my residency we taught, we were not taught anything at all about sexual health. In fact, recently I was with an academic hospital and I know for a fact that they were not teaching the residents either about sexual health. So then where do physicians actually get their information. And that's why they don't do it, because we as doctors, we like to talk about things that we know. In fact, if I were on this podcast and you asked me to talk about the incidence of prostate cancer and how we treat prostate cancer and all the details, I would squirm and I would sound stupid and I would not be very happy that I was on this podcast. But I talk about what I know. I talk about what I care about and I'm very, I can speak very confidently to that. So to your point, because we don't teach doctors about these issues, they're working on their own personal experience. Yes. And I'll tell you, we spend our 20s in the library studying for exams. We're not out there exploring our sexuality. Now, some people are, but but it's the rarity, not the rule. And so the problem is, is I, can't, I can't see a patient who has a different background or different beliefs than I do or different um, things that they want to do and put my bias on them to say what I think they should care about. Because if a patient comes to me with a low libido and wants to be having you know, more sex than they're having or cares about group sex or wants to do things that maybe I wouldn't do in my personal life, they should get to do what is right for them and their bodies as long as it is safe and consensual and, you know, those sorts of things. And so, but we're not trained to talk about it. We're not trained to care about it. We're trained to care about cancer and life and death and things like that. But our patients care about quality of life, right? They care about their relationships. They care about the closeness uh, to their partners and it matters. And, and so we have you know, and it's, it's challenging to do in a 10 minute visit, you know, when your legs are up in stirrups and you only get, you know, three minutes with your gynecologist who's running late and has six more patients to see after you. It's, it's a challenge, but it doesn't mean it's not important. What I love is um, in that article with the New York Times, I love how you give your patients a mirror and you go through their anatomy with them. And I think that that is so empowering to the patient because once they know their anatomy and then they understand it and they know the function of it, they can then advocate for themselves and what their pleasure is. And so that makes a huge difference in their lives for them. And that's really what I lecture on so frequently. I mean, come on, in 2022, in the science section of the New York Times, a full page was the, the big novel thing was that I give women a mirror and I teach them their own body parts. And that was science in 2022. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing when you think of it that way, but how impactful it is for patients to yeah. be given a mirror and to be shown, this is your labia majora, this is your clitoris, this is your vulva, this is your vagina, this is your pelvic floor, this is what's working, this is what happens when you have babies. This is what happens in menopause. It empowers women to have language, language. So if something goes wrong, they can say, hey, Dr. Rubin, I have pain in my vulvar vestibule, not, hey, Dr. Rubin, down there is not working right. It's icky and smelly and it bleeds and it makes me very scared and confused and I don't know what to do. Right, 
Right. No, I think that is phenomenal. And I wish that more of us, even, you know, OBGYNs, we don't know. I mean, so many OBGYNs, I, I'm trying to think, I feel like recently I was giving a lecture and everybody was just causing, calling the vulva the vagina, right? So we don't have the terminology and we just don't know. And so when we don't know, then we can't tell our patients and then our patients are never going to learn. So I think that that is. And, the, and it's also a kind of interesting that the, the, the woman who wrote the New York Times article just wrote another very interesting piece about the term vulva is there's no vulva for men, right? Men don't have a vulva. So the idea is, do we, is vulva even a thing? Because mm. the vulva is really a compilation of a lot of different body parts that do different things that have different embryologies. Like you would never, like you could say genitals, right? Like men have genitals and women have genitals. So I think genitals might be the better word, but the idea that the vulva is one unit right. because it's not, it's the clitoris and the labia majora and the labia minora and the, you know, does the vulvar vestibule count and what, what are we even talking about? And it turns out none of us agree. Like if you asked me to circle what I thought was in the vulva and you circled what you thought was in the vulva, we might not agree. And that's the problem with the terminology too, is it is even that is not perfect. Yeah, no, that's crazy. And I'm glad you bring that up because it just, explains why we need the need for research in sexual health. And I know that that is a big part of what you do as well. You are part of the education committee of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And they had put on a phenomenal conference back in March. And I know that you chair that and that's so important. And you have so much research that has also come out. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we're doing, you know, I, I sort of started a research group about a year ago, maybe a little longer, and basically saying, I'm tired of telling patients we don't have data for that. I'm tired of saying, well, we haven't seen any harm, but we just don't know. I'm tired. There's all these unknown questions. Well, why can't we study it? And the problem in sexual health research is there's no money. The NIH is not funding billions of dollars in research in women's orgasms. And so it's really challenging. So unless there is a drug company that wants to study something that has money and has a product, it is very hard to do research in this world. Um, and so I have collected a ragtag group of medical students, doctors, basic scientists, like you name it. And we meet once a month and we do sort of a mentorship research group. We're called the SMRT, the SMART team, the Sexual Medicine Research Team. And we're really just helping to mentor young students to get them to be able to work on projects that they care about. And it's been incredible what they've been producing, what they've been doing. They're helping in many, many projects. We're already working on, we're publishing, uh, we're submitting papers on med student education in the Chicago area right? So the lack of sexual education, yeah. Yeah. we're doing, um, we did the clitoral adhesion data. We've got, you know, all of these questions are coming out. We've got all these research projects going. Um, and we, there's more, like we have so much work to do in this space. There's, you know, I tell the students, I said, you want to study it, let's figure out a way to do it. But there are unlimited questions and there's unlimited research that we need to do. So any bit of it is important. I can't do it all on my own. And so I'm really trying to create this army of people who can champion things because because we need textbooks changed, we need more articles, we need more data, we need so many things. So I need all these students to care about one particular aspect and then grow that body of research and then they can be superstars in this space. Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking back to, you know, you're talking about textbooks. I'm just trying to figure out like if Netter even, you know, 
labeled the clitoris. He, up. he didn't. So, Netter, so our anatomy textbooks did not fully look at the clitoris or the vulvar vestibule or any of those things. So it's not in our anatomy textbooks. Yeah. And so there are many textbooks. And that was part of the article in the New York Times too, is that it was a, uh, a you know, a patient who was harmed by a, a genital labial surgery that actually has been pioneering trying to get textbooks changed and get more clitoral anatomy because we don't, plastic surgeons who are operating and gynecologists who are operating on the, on the labia have no idea what the nerves are and nobody's been looking at it. And that's a huge problem because nerves matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. With sensation and the ability to orgasm. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot I've noticed that you also mentioned vaginal estrogen, and I know how important that is. And I'm hoping you can um, talk to us a little bit about that and its role in perimenopause and menopause and just really how important it is really forever. It really. Okay. So let's, let's give the overview. So something I find is helpful is Babies don't have hormones, okay? So if you get a baby girl, they don't have hormones. They don't have labia minora. They have little vaginal openings that are so teeny tiny. They're red, they're irritated, and we put diaper cream all over them because it looks so painful. Babies pee their diapers all the time, okay? Then those babies go through puberty and they get a surge of hormones where the genitals change. You grow labia minora. The opening becomes pink and stretchy and lubricated and tampons can go in and sex can happen and babies can be made and vaginal deliveries can happen. So the tissue of a baby is not the same as the tissue of someone who is having babies, right? Very different. And it's hormones that are important for that tissue, estrogen hormones, testosterone hormones. And it is really important for the health of the vulva, vagina, and it turns out bladder and urethra tissues as well. And so when perimenopause and menopause start to happen, the hormone levels and how those hormones act on the tissue starts to change to the point where you lose, you you stop making estrogen and testosterone drops precipitously. And so it is the lack of hormones to this tissue that now the body's going in reverse. It gets dry, it gets irritated, it cracks, it bleeds, it turns red, and you pee your diaper all the time, right? When you get older, like you have no control. And it turns out. So, so as a baby who it's not a sexual space, those people now, as you're getting older, still want to have sex. And so sex happens, it's painful, it hurts, it doesn't lubricate. Um, and, and all the muscles underneath get very tight and, and even, even more painful. So sometimes it hurts to sit, it hurts to wear pants or underwear. And, and again, urinary tract infections start to happen in this population because of the changes in the microbiome. So the hormones keep very healthy bacteria and keep the tissue acidic so it can then fight infection. And so what happens is, you know, maybe you get a one UTI at 50, maybe at 70, you now have three urinary tract infections, maybe at 80 or 90, you're incontinent all the time and you keep getting urinary tract infections, which can kill you. They can cause sepsis and death if you get a lot of urinary tract infections. So vaginal hormones are local hormones that protect the tissue and rebuild the tissue. It's not just there to make you feel better, and they do make you feel better after using them for about two to three months, but they're like moisturizer or chapstick. You use them continuously to give the tissue the health it needs to stay strong and healthy, to self-lubricate, and to acidify so that it can fight infection. 
And it is essential. I mean, it is so important, not just about sex, although it will allow you to continue having penetrative sex if you want to, but it's actually even more important to help prevent urinary frequency and urinary urgency and bladder infections, which really can kill you now, but mostly later when you're, you know, grandma and great grandma age, they can really like cause harm. And so people under, I always, I, I spoke to, you know, 70 GYNs in Canada today at their grand rounds in Alberta, Canada. And I said, you know how to do this. I'm not teaching you anything new, but you need to advocate for this more loudly. You need to tell women why they have to use this because it's so protective, not, oh, you could try this if you want to. It becomes a, this is as important as your mammogram and your pap smear and your colonoscopy. This is to make it so that you can continue to sit and wear pants and have your, no urinary symptoms. And so that's kind of the advocacy. And the problem is, is when they take the products home, they have, they're mislabeled by the FDA and they say that these products are harmful. They cause stroke, blood clots, heart attacks, dementia. And as you know, none of that is true, right? It is completely false. And so the misadvertising by the FDA scares women into thinking their doctors are somehow not knowledgeable and harming them. And so we have a huge, huge problem uh, uh, dealing with that. And, and so not enough people are getting these therapies. And I know that was long-winded, but I do think someone listening to this has a grandma or a great-grandma uh, who is suffering, who is suffering with pain, who is suffering with urinary symptoms, and actually could be cured with local vaginal estrogen or vaginal DHEA, but typically it's vaginal estrogen. Um, and it can be curative, but it takes two to three months to work, and it doesn't uh, continue to work unless you keep using it. You know, I think that is so important what you just stated. There are so many of us and me included that I think that if I didn't take, um, I studied a whole nother year. I did the sexual counseling and education course through the University of Michigan. And I think if I didn't have that education and then, you know, start following people like you and so many other physicians that talk about vaginal estrogen, I don't think I would know either. I mean, we really, really just don't get taught. And unless you're in the right circles, you're just you're not going to know. And so you're going to be going through life during menopause through, with all this pain, and even during perimenopause through pain and discomfort and not really understanding why you're having all of this. And, you know, just as what I was taught when I was going through residency and stuff like that is that you either use it or you lose it, but that's really not even true, right? Mm -hmm. And it really has to do with the vaginal estrogen and, you know, whether or not the vagina is being lubricated and what that tissue is doing as it goes through, as we go through menopause. And we all know that we're all going to go through menopause, but it just really is this just lack of knowledge for most physicians that we don't even really know how to help our patients. Yeah. And I think we assume our doctors know everything. I think people think we're robots who just come with a whole downloaded, uh, you yeah. know, and maybe the AI is coming. The robots might actually be able to help us a little bit better. Um, you know, but, but we're not robots. And, and if we weren't taught how to do it, it becomes very hard to teach. Uh, for some reason, this area is becoming very hard to teach doctors new things. Um, and we're working on it. We're screaming and yelling. And that's actually why social media can be helpful because I can teach large um, numbers of, of, of clinicians how to do this, but also give them the confidence to say, you can do this. This is not hard. Here's how to write the prescription. Here's what you do. Here's how you back it up. And I hope to do more of it in the future, but because there's just really so much, there's so much to do here. 
Yeah, no. And I think that what you're doing on social media is really helpful because once physicians start to follow you and they know that, you know, all everything that you say is backed by evidence based, you research backed, all of that information will then just come to those physicians, then they'll be able to advocate and then explain to their patients how to go about using that. I think that that's so important. Now, ever since I've learned more about the menopausal hormone therapy and vaginal estrogen and all that, now when I see patients, I advocate for that all the time now. Now I'm telling them, you know, there's no reason to have this vaginal atrophy. There's no reason to have these recurrent UTIs when there's something that can be done about that. And you're so right, when you have recurrent UTIs, I mean, the, that can actually kill a person, right? Person can, a woman can be septic and she can die because she wasn't told that she could stop these infections by being on vaginal estrogen. I know that somebody else had mentioned um, that there is one contraindication to vaginal estrogen and that was somebody that has a history of endometrial cancer. Is that the case or? So untreated endometrial cancer, I would probably say yes, but I think we have data to show people with a history of endometrial cancer, cervical cancer, ovarian cancer, that use of vaginal estrogen did not cause any risk of recurrence, uh, thrombosis, or any issues. And so, um, you know, do we need more data and studies? Of course we do. But most endometrial cancer, and you could teach me a lot about endometrial cancer, but most of it is pretty localized and endometriosis, or sorry, endometrial cancer has a tell, it bleeds. And so you take the uterus out and most of it is very, right, once that uterus is out, the risk of then further problems or metastasis usually is not very high, if I understand correctly. But but really, it's those people who ignored the bleeding for many years, and then they have metastatic endometrial cancer and things like that, that you become problematic. But people who have treated endometrial cancer, um, you know, I would not hesitate to add that as part of the regimen. And the reason is, is when you give someone, it's funny, I actually had this patient this week. She said, Dr. Rubin, I have hot flashes. I have night sweats. I'm miserable, but I'm using estrogen. And she was using her vaginal estrogen inserts. And we, I, we, we had labs uh, for other reasons. We checked labs on her and her estrogen was zero, right? She had zero estrogen in her body, but she said, but I'm using my vaginal inserts, you know, three times a week. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I said, yeah. And that is fixing your vaginal and bladder symptoms, which were great. She was having no pain with sex. She was so happy. She has not had a UTI or a yeast infection or BV. She's so thrilled, but now she has all the other menopause symptoms. And so that's why, you know, the vaginal hormones do not go through the whole body and do not increase estrogen levels. And so they really were not worried about breast cancer and stroke and heart attacks and dementia. Um, the, the, so it, do we need more data and research? Of course we do. And so many breast cancer survivors are terrified of the word estrogen, but there is a difference between whole body estrogen and the minuscule doses of vaginal estrogen right? So right there, if you were to give estrogen by mouth, you might give two milligrams per day, right? That's 2000 micrograms. Okay. Right. Two milligrams. If I do my math correctly is 2000 micrograms per day of estrogen. Vaginal estrogen is 10 micrograms twice a week, right? So 2000 micrograms every day versus 10 micrograms twice a week, right? It's a big difference. It's a big difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think, um, what would you say that you would want women to know? One thing, if there's anything that they take away from this talk, from this um, information that you've provided, what would be one thing that you would want them to know and walk away with and be able to advocate? Just that education is power, that quality of life matters, and that your quality of life is 
just as important as your partner's. And and it matters. It's important. If it's important to you, it should be important to your medical team. And you have to learn how to advocate, learn, educate yourself through good resources and evidence-based resources, and learn how to communicate and advocate for yourself in the bedroom, in the doctor's office, and, and become, you can learn the day, you can learn all of the knowledge, all of the education, all of the anatomy. You can learn it. Just find spaces where, where you can get the information and just use it to advance and increase pleasure and quality of life. Absolutely. And I would just add to that, that it's never too late, right? Women sometimes feel that it's just too late. It's not worth it. It's, you know, it's a chore, it's this and that. And I would counter by saying that it's never too late and that you can always enjoy sex and you can always find that pleasure. I just saw a patient just yesterday who I've been working with for years who has never had a partner, has never had an interest in having a partner. She's in her mid-60s and she lost her orgasm and she was very distressed by it. And we were able to get it back through a number of different treatments. And every six months I see her and we catch up and talk about theater and her travels and just, she's so happy. She is so happy. And, And so it matters. It doesn't always need to be a partner, like it matters. That's awesome. That is awesome. Well, how can people reach out and get in touch with you? I know your wait list is like out of control. Like nobody. No, it's not so bad. So, so um, I would say rachelrubinmd.com. We have a mailing list and we don't spam you. We really send out interesting articles or updates in our practice. So rachelrubinmd.com is a great way. Of course, social media on all the channels, but TikTok, I'm at Dr. Rachel Rubin, Dr. Rachel Rubin. Um, and I would love for you to reach out and follow uh, and really just, um, uh, you know, find, um, let us know how we can help, how we can, whether it's you coming to be a patient, whether it's you just sharing this information with your friends. Uh, Again, it's so important. We just hired a new doctor. And so we're we're getting patients in a little quicker, but it it is a a challenge. People, when they find out about this and they're like, oh, there's someone who can help me, they, they rush towards you, which is so wonderful. Because there is such a desert, right? In this type of field of sexual health, there just are not very many providers that are qualified, that know, that understand, and that can actually help you. And so you're, you are serving so many people live their best lives. And I applaud you for that. I think that is amazing. So thank you so much for all that you are doing. And definitely for anyone that is local enough to live near where Dr. Rachel Rubin practices, you should not walk, but run there. She is amazing. And she just is just so full of knowledge. And I think that I would definitely follow her on all of her channels because uh, I do. <laughs> and that's where I learned Thank a lot you. too. Thank you so much. So, well, we are done here and it's been real and really intimate. And remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you're having any health issues or many menopausal symptoms, perimenopausal symptoms or clitoral adhesions or any of those things, please reach out to your medical provider and make sure that you are seen and make sure that you advocate for yourself. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends. And thanks for listening.